This episode of The New Way We Work is brought to you by Verizon, the network America relies on. This is The New Way We Work from Fast Company Magazine, where we take listeners on a journey through the changing landscape of our work lives and explain what we need to build the future we want. I'm Fast Company Deputy Editor, Kate Davis. This season, we're taking an overview of issues of diversity, equity, and inclusion at work from race and gender to disability and in future episodes, LGBTQ rights. On this episode, we're exploring an element of disability at work, neurodiversity. Neurodiversity embraces the variety of different brain makeups that people can have. It's also a category of identity that's often overlooked and underserved in the DEI efforts. Neurodiversity can include, but is not at all limited to things like ADHD, autism, dyslexia, and more. And very often, many of the elements of our workplaces are built around things like eye contact, noisy group work, and generally overstimulating settings. In other words, most of our work is built for neurotypical people. Joining me to discuss neurodiversity at work is Hiran Shukla. Hiran is the founder and global leader of the Neurodiverse Centers for Excellence at EY Global. Hiran, thanks so much for being here. Thanks, Kate. Excited to be here and talk to you today. So... What does, let's, let's kind of take big picture to start with, what does neurodiversity encompass and what are the benefits for companies to have a more neurodiverse workforce? It's a fantastic question. And in a rapidly evolving new space, there's a lot of uh, lack of awareness and then in some cases, misunderstanding. So I'm so glad we're starting with some definition. So Neurodiversity represents the entire realm of cognitive thinking styles that exist in the world. Effectively, neurodiversity includes everyone. There are two components in neurodiversity. The majority of the world's population, about 80%, are considered neurotypical. About 20% of the world's population are considered neurodivergent. And the reason is they have an inherent cognitive difference in how they think, see, experience the world. And it's really the neurodivergent population that has been on the fringe of the workforce. And that component added into a broader strategic workforce discussion for employers. We know, Kate, organizations today are thinking about how to activate their workforce using complex problem solving, creativity, emerging technology like artificial intelligence, uh, and then extracting value of data. And they're doing all of this without thinking about this untapped neurodivergent population. And so to your question, There is a massive opportunity when we think about 20% of the world's population that is at 85% unemployment or underemployment. And this population is literally under our noses in the communities we live in, but it's going to take organizational change and deliberate orchestration 
to gain the benefits that we've seen at EY around the entire movement of neurodiversity. And I want to get into that, what changes need to be made and how and how we start to bring that. That's a, such a staggering statistic of 85% unemployment, how we start bringing those people into, into companies. Can you get a little more granular on, a, on an example of a person who is neurodivergent and why they are, you know, a skill that, that a particular person might have that's very beneficial for a particular problem that a company is trying to solve? Yeah, absolutely. And Kate, I, I really like this question because it gets down to what we at EY six years ago were deliberately trying to figure out how to build innovation capacity. Where does this innovation capacity come from? And what are the components of innovation that allow you to disrupt yourself, reimagine the future, be bold enough to challenge your current status quo and do all of this by remaining and becoming even that much more authentic and transparent to not only your customers and clients, but to your stakeholders in the community, your supply chain, your vendors. And the reason, Kate, that I pause on this is because there really is a business driver and imperative of why organizations should be considering a neurodiversity workforce integrated into their broader diversity, equity, and inclusion models, as opposed to just recognition of neurodiversity as a DNI segment or a corporate social responsibility program. All of these are very nice to do, but your question, Kate, really comes back to the reason why at EY we went down this path. We we began to dig deeper into a hypothesis that's led to, we believe, about 35% of the neurodivergent population has extremely high creativity, complex problem-solving skill, data and technology, acumen, aptitude, and interest. And Kate, it's these three items of acumen, aptitude, and interest for any person in the world, when those three line up, like a constellation in the sky, it creates a a level of focus of that employee who will outperform anybody that you have in the space. So for us, we deliberately said, how do we tap into this portion of the population that really wants to solve complex problems and extremely creative? And oh, by the way, it's very comfortable and excited the use of emerging technology and data. And that's the opportunity at hand. Yeah, that's that's that sounds like there's so much untapped um, opportunity. And when you say, you know, that our that our workplaces are, you know, we're just kind of not looking at it and we're thinking at it, of it as a like, oh, this is a nice thing to do. It's actually, you know, as you point out, it's a business imperative. Um, our current work environment, though, is not set up for neurodivergent people. It's it's really set up and biased towards neurotypical employees. What can can you walk through kind of what those things are that are set up that are kind of working against neurodivergent people and and what kind of changes employers can make to be more inclusive? Absolutely. This um <laughs> this was the uh deconstruction that we did 6 years ago 
say, why is the unemployment or underemployment rate at 85%? What is happening? And I'll start with the, <laughs> the talent sort, uh, assessment process, basically the interview process. Traditional interviews are behavioral based where we're looking for building rapport, being witty, <laughs> thinking on your feet, making eye contact. It's really based on, can I create this social connection with the interviewer, which allows me now to basically sell myself, okay? <laughs> and Kate, we started with that point because we realized that most neurodivergent individuals, unfortunately, are being screened out at that point. And therefore, if we don't change and alter our talent assessment process to a performance-based process, as opposed to a behavioral-based process, unfortunately, we will continue making the same mistakes. And so we literally had to start with the point of contact of where these individuals are. And this is where, Kate, we would work with government and academia and nonprofit. And we'd go to all these sourcing avenues that have not been traditional. Academia has. But instead of going to the career counseling office, you have to go to the Office of Student Services or Office of Student Disabilities. And you have to make a very explicit and overt statement that you are an employer who is committed to making the changes and listening to the voices of the neurodivergent team members, however quiet they may be, because that's the voice that's been missing at the table. Subsequent to our hiring process, it really then starts with how do you support these individuals? who are going through their own changes and struggles, just like everybody else. And so creating that support system that wraps around them and recognizing the uniqueness of their needs, everything from one of our team members has four separate monitors or screens. And this was an unusual request. Why do you need four monitors or screens? He explained that this is how his brain works. He will work on four different things at the same time but if he doesn't have it compartmentalized, he will all get jumbled up in his head. And so we really decided to tweak the environment to allow for small things, noise cancellation headsets for those that would want it. Maybe the flexibility of uh, your work schedule. And then obviously, last but not least, involving the neurodivergent employees in helping us develop and iterate on hiring, sourcing, onboarding, training, and career performance processes that we have. Those are great examples of, of accommodations and like small things that, that employers can do. I'm wondering, since you brought up the interview process, and that is something that, you know, we think about is is so personality based, right? Like so much of hiring decisions are not on your credentials are not even on your potential. It's on like chemistry with the person that you're interviewing with. And as you say, like that's such a, a black box. That's such a difficult thing for anybody to figure out, especially somebody who's neurodivergent, that that particular eye contact or or small talk or whatever could be the, the thing that, you know, is most challenging. How have you 
and, and structured and, and how would you recommend um, other people get around that kind of the traditional interview format and structure it in a different way? Yeah, um, Kate, we, we've worked right now with about 100 organizations um, effectively breaking down their existing process that would say, let's look at your job description first. Job descriptions today are like the kitchen sink. You have Superman, Superwoman that's being described in that job description. And we said, wow, how interesting that neurodivergent candidates would effectively look at this laundry list of a job description and they will screen themselves out. They'll say, ah, I meet six out of 10 of those, but I don't meet the other four. Therefore, I'm not qualified for this role. So we started, first of all, even with how do we effectively boil down job descriptions? And we start uh, designing them for these future-focused skills. Secondarily, Kate, we take out any and all surprises from the interview or the assessment process. We have a four-stage process. We explain the entire process up front because there is, this is not a pop quiz. <laughs> this is about who is really interested committed to learn and grow and apply themselves in an area where with the emerging technology, we know the technologies are changing at every three months. <laughs> it means we're going to need a very agile workforce. The third thing that we've done is we've elongated and invested more time to front load into a behavioral-based process. It's something that we call EY Super Week. And Super Week is a cohort of candidates who go through team building, go through individual technical assessment. And through the process, we are observing and coaching. We really want to help these individuals be in a safe environment because we know that having to mask or camouflage who you are effectively puts a giant damper on your innovation process or capability. And we want to create that environment, whether you uh, are stemming and you need to fidget a lot or uh, eye contact or just your schedule. If we don't adjust for these things up front, we will never see the real potential of our team members. And so, uh, Kate, last I'll say a lot of companies will say, oh, my God, it's a lot of work that you're doing up front. And we say... Would you like 92% retention of your workforce in data science and artificial intelligence and cybersecurity? Because if you would, <laughs> making this investment up front is easy. You will get a 10, 20x return on that investment because 92% retention, as far as I know, is best in class. And it's so interesting as you were talking, you know, about some of the different accommodations and changes that you've made in your interviewing process. You know, other conversations that I've had this season on the show when we've talked about building an inclusive workforce for women or for people of color or for disabled people, a lot of those same things have come up. And I, I think so building these things, you know, taking making this extra effort isn't just, you know, being, oh, we're making this this effort for neurodivergent people. It's really making an effort to be more inclusive for everybody. And and that it makes me wonder too, and I'd love to hear how if how you've seen this, how bias against uh, disabled people or neurodivergent people intersects with other biases against race and gender and sexual orientation in the workforce, and how how we can combat against that. 
Yeah, Kate, I, I love this question. I'm going to approach it from a standpoint of intersectionality, which is really what I think mm-hmm. you're hitting. You didn't think about this consciously up front, that the neurodivergent population is a microcosm for every single diversity segment you can see. Age, gender, color, socioeconomic, sexual orientation. There, it's all existent in there. And what we started to see in this, what we call affectionately this spillover, is to say, when we create these processes that remove surprise, that invest more in the candidate up front, it's like that old, and I'm probably dating myself, that old V8 commercial where you hit yourself in the head, like, why didn't I think about this before? We say, who, who doesn't appreciate clarity? and explicitness Mm -hmm. and information up front so that you're much better prepared to contribute and to show up. We say this is good for everybody. And so it's really interesting, but important, Kate, that we don't see our neurodiverse centers of excellence in a bubble or in silo. We see these best in class practices at EY now being pushed out so that when we do go on campus and we're hiring 50, 60,000 people a year around the world. How do we create a greater level of inclusiveness, as you say, for everybody? Because what is beautiful about what's happening here, Kate, is our neurodiverse centers of excellence are like a belonging and equity amplifier. It's like a Wi-Fi signal, okay? And this signal for belonging and equity is so powerful that it's now reaching the hearts and the minds of all kinds of people that say, wow, I can really bring my whole self to work. I can really be authentic, including the baggage that I have and who I am. And and that's what organizations have been asking employees to do. But I think before an employee will bring their whole self to work, unless the employer or the organization is willing to make these overt, explicit, and meaningful changes I don't know how credible or authentic and believable it would be for an employee to say, wow, I really am in a psychologically safe environment to be myself. Yeah, exactly. I think I think when we, we hear that a lot, when we have these other conversations about DE&I at work is like, oh, yeah, we, we've made a statement. You, you can be who you are. We're inclusive. And it's like you have to 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 walk the walk and talk the talk for for them to, you know, for people to to trust you, really. It's a, it's a matter of building trust. And, you know, so we've talked so far a lot about the employer side of it, a lot about how, you know, people in um, decision-making positions who may be listening can can make some changes. What about the other side of it, the people, uh, the employees who are looking for work? When a recent episode, we talked about um, disabilities at work and, and kind of the, the internal calculus of when to disclose and how to disclose and how to ask for accommodations. And you mentioned earlier, you know, employees that you have that have asked for accommodations. What are your thoughts on um, for a neurodiverse person who is um, applying for a job, when when and how they should bring it up in the interview process or after, um, and just kind of yeah, how how to dis- how and when to disclose and and how to you know be comfortable doing so. As a neurotypical ally for neurodivergency, uh, clearly I cannot speak on behalf of that population, but I have some really good friends who in who are neurodivergent who have coached me and they still advise me today 
on certain simple things of, you know, confliction, right? The world be yourself, but at the end of the day, if you are yourself, you, you, you may not get doors open, you get doors closed. This has been a very unfortunate experience and created a deficit of trust amongst the neurodivergent population to employers. So I would say, first and foremost, if you're neurodivergent, you absolutely want to be with an employer who is outright committed to you. And frankly, that would mean if you were to disclose upfront who you are and what things that you need, and then you're willing to work together, if the employer walks at this or walks away or doesn't have the ability, and many at this point, I confess, are don't, they're just trying. Because making changes sometimes is like trying to make a U-turn with the Titanic, right? That didn't work out so well. But I think that in, in my perfect world, a neurodivergent individual would disclose up front because at the end of the day, unfortunately, we've seen if you don't disclose and the employer doesn't know and you're not getting the accommodations you need, it leads to more stress, more anxiety, more depression, and, and, and it almost compounds the issue. Um, I know it's for me easier said than done. So I, again, preface that I cannot speak on behalf of the neurodivergent population. And I would say last but not least, Kate, our neurodivergent team members and colleagues around the world are at all ranks, doing all kinds of jobs. There is nothing typical about what they need to do. And that's a mold that needs to be broken in the perception, public perception today on a road type of work and only data and technology. It's actually creativity and complex problem solving that I think should motivate employers to be not only accepting, <laughs> this is not about tolerance, this is about employer, are you willing to make the changes to unlock the power of human potential and capital? And if you do this with your neurodivergent team members and employees or candidates, this will resonate with others, kind of like the belonging and equity fire. Yeah, that's a, you know, that's a really interesting point. And the person I spoke to on our last episode, you know, said, you never disclose unless you have to, you never disclose, you know, until you have the job offer. And I think there's a lot, a lot of validity to that, you know, a lot of fear of, you know, you disclose and and then the employer, you know, backs away. But it's, it's interesting what you're saying too, because it, it kind of relates to, you know, we've written a lot about like how to suss out a company culture in, in the interview process, how to like spot a toxic company culture before you take the job and regret it. And what you're saying, I feel like touches on that a little bit is, is for the candidate to be able to suss out, like, is this a place that's going to be accepting of me and going to be an inclusive workplace and going to be somewhere that I want to work and, and kind of sussing that out before, maybe before disclosing, but also before like going further in the interview process. Yeah, absolutely, Kate. And um, again, easier for me to say there's clearly individual circumstances, economics. Somebody said, I need this job. Yeah. But, you know, we look at this as not a job. It's a career. It's an investment that you individual are making, not only in that organization, but the organization needs to make in you. And I think, you know, we found our neurodivergent team members are the absolute most transparent individuals we can have. And that actually provides us with a level of agility, speed, and resilience. 
And Kate, this was before the pandemic. So we say coming out of the pandemic, fingers crossed, right at the end of the tunnel, if you don't have an, an agile, resilient workforce, oh my God, how will you not only survive, you'll never thrive. So I do, I would love to say with the great organizations that we are seeing today, EY and, and others, there are a lot of really great organizations today who are committed to you as a neurodivergent individual and a potential employee. You can connect with those. <laughs> I think that your experience will be that much better. You you kind of segue nicely to what I my last question was, you know, we can't pretend that we're not in the time that we're in. I would be really interested to hear how you think the pandemic and also, you know, specifically remote work has changed the workplace for both better and worse for neurodivergent people. Yeah. And I'll I'll use some of the data points that our team members and and other neurodivergent colleagues have passed on um, as reference. I I would say first and foremost, the challenge, the isolation, uh, the lack of movement, uh, this, this has created heavy mental health challenges for all of us, neurotypical you know, diversion regardless, would say that our team members are, are NCOE team members, our Neurodiverse Center of Excellence team members at Y have done exceptionally well. And, and we, we went to break down the reasons why. We said, hey, wait a minute, you remember that trifecta of data and technology, acumen, aptitude, and interest? These inherently are individuals who are very comfortable using technology and you know, when you're on Zoom or Microsoft Teams or WebEx, you're not really making direct eye contact. So it maybe could alleviate some of those challenges in person. Um, and, you know, our, our, one of our teams does a Thursday night board game night over, you know, Microsoft Teams. <laughs> this is something that they do to maintain the sense of camaraderie on their own. But aside from all this, Kate, I would say that sustaining and scaling such a uh, talent innovation model in your organization requires a business imperative. And this is where we differentiate from a DNI program or a corporate social responsibility program or just a general hiring program. I'll hire two individuals here and one there, and oh, I've got an opening here, which are all great to do. Except we've hired 60 individuals during the pandemic and launched in India and Canada because our business requires requires us to access talent. And so for us, the <laughs> going remote has actually opened up the talent population that we have access to. We are now accessing neurodivergent candidates where they are as opposed to only where we need them. And for us, this has made us very bullish on we're going to double down. This is a workforce of the future. This is not anything that is meant to be Ah, nice to do and window dressing. This is a core part of EY strategy along AI and analytics and automation and blockchain and all the areas that we say, boy, these are the skills that are going to drive us to build and activate that workforce of the future. Yeah. I think that's something that we're just hearing again and again and again from every company in every industry targeting every type of employee, right? Is that this, 
move to remote work that we were kind of forced into, like, honestly, it was where work was going anyways. And now it has, has forced companies to realize it and get there faster and forced them and allowed them rather to see that the talent pool is not limited to where their offices are and and really has opened up the the talent pool for everybody. So I think, you know, for me, that's one of the the biggest and best takeaways work-wise from this awful time. Hiran Shukla, the founder and global leader of the Neurodiverse Centers for Excellence at EY Global. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Kate. And that's all for this episode. If you're a new listener, be sure to subscribe to The New Way We Work wherever you listen. I also really encourage you to go back and listen to some of our past episodes this season where we've covered things like code switching, the pay gap, and more. If you liked this episode, leave us a rating, a review on Apple Podcasts. The New Way We Work is produced by Joshua Christensen. This episode of The New Way We Work is brought to you by Verizon, the network you can rely on for your phone and for your home internet. Find the plan that's right for you at verizon.com.